Good morning. I'm Leslie Thatcher, 806 on this Monday. It's February 19th. Happy President's Day. 25 degrees currently here in Old Town Park City. Definitely some clouds. Also reporting 20 degrees in the Heber Valley. On the phone with us with the ABC Forecast Center meteorologist Thomas Geboy. Good morning. Morning, Leslie. Happy Monday and happy President's Day to you as well. In Park City, it's going to be kind of a mixed bag day today because as we go through the first half of the day, it's going to be quiet and relatively pleasant as our temperature eventually climbs to above our seasonal averages. We'll get to 43 degrees in Park City this afternoon, which is pretty warm for this time of year. But through the first half of the day, we'll mainly see increasing clouds, quiet conditions. Things will begin to change, though, once we make our way through this afternoon as we have our next system that's going to be on the way. And by the time we get to 3, 4 o'clock, we'll bring in a decent chance of finding wet weather. And that chance for wet weather will only increase from this afternoon into tonight. But with the temperature climbing into the low 40s in Park City this afternoon, there's a chance that we could start off with mainly rain before we could start to see that change over in the snow as we move into tonight with that overnight low dropping to around freezing but by tonight a 90 percent chance of seeing rain and snow and this is just going to kick off an active pattern that's going to be sticking around through more or less the middle of the week so for our tuesday 90 percent chance of showers and with the daytime high that's going to be around 40 degrees once again there's going to be a chance of rain and snow even in park city but as we go into wednesday we'll finally start to see more seasonal air move in with daytime highs that'll be more so in the 30s so a better chance of seeing exclusively snow in park city and as we go from more Wednesday night into Thursday, the overnight low dropped to 24 degrees, a 50-50 chance of snow, and maybe a little bit of lingering snow through the day on Thursday, roughly a 40% chance with the daytime high coming in at 38. So as we go throughout the next couple of days, there is a chance that we could see some accumulations, or at least through tomorrow in Park City, where it could be on the magnitude of 1 to 3. But if the colder air comes in and is able to stick around a little bit longer, then obviously we could see a little bit more than that. And we already do have winter weather advisories posted for the Wasatch Mountains, and that's mainly going to be above 7,000 feet, and those are going to continue into Wednesday as we could definitely see half a foot plus with maybe getting one to two feet in some spots. Well, of course, we'll keep our fingers crossed for that as well. But from Thursday night into Friday, after this active stretch of weather comes to an end, we should settle into a relatively calm stretch for our Friday and Saturday. Not going to last too long, though, because we'll likely bring back a chance for some more wet weather by Sunday, and our temperatures will continue to stay near or above our seasonal averages. Friday will be in the upper 30s, and we'll likely be back in the low 40s as we move into this upcoming weekend, Leslie. Okay, Thomas, thanks so much. You're welcome. And with a look in the backcountry on the phone with us from the Utah Avalanche Center, we have Dave. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Leslie. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Today we're looking at a, a, a considerable avalanche danger at the upper elevations where it may be possible for someone to trigger a wind-drifted snow avalanche near the ridgetops and on the leeward side of terrain features. The mid-elevation slopes have a moderate avalanche danger. Um, we've had a number of reports of avalanches that are failing on new old snow interface. Um, that was buried on Valentine's Day. And this storm interface has been associated with a crust in many locations. And we've seen avalanches on this layer failing one to two feet deep. Uh, we're also, another avalanche problem for today is wet snow with temperatures warming up into the high 30s and a lot of new snow on the ground. Um, we're thinking that we could see wet loose avalanches at the mid and low elevation sunny aspects out of the wind zone. Uh, we've had a number of um, recent avalanche activity reported uh, yesterday afternoon we had an avalanche up in the Wolverine Cirque area and then a skier triggered avalanche on the Petticoat above the Alta Summer Road and then in Rocky Point in Upper Big Cottonwood Canyon all about two feet deep.
Okay, Dave, thanks. Thank you. It's 8-11 now. Good morning, I'm Leslie Thatcher. This is the KPCW Local News Hour. Again, we've got traffic in the usual areas, again, coming in 224 and 248. Kind of nice the last couple of days without that traffic, but uh, passes are now open and available for those of you uh, with on the Epic Pass. You do need to have an Icon Pass reservation to head to Deer Valley, and all of the day passes at Deer Valley are sold out. Deer Valley is starting early. They had their lifts turning as of 8 a.m. this morning. Anyway, coming up on the local news hour this morning, I'll be checking in with Park City Fire District Marshal Mike Owens. We'll be talking about some of the hazards of indoor heating. Youth Sports Alliance Executive Director Emily Fisher with an update on some of the opportunities for scholarships in this se- later on for this season. And finally, Snyderville Basin Recreation District Director Dana Jones in with an update. She presented the 10-year strategic plan and five-year trails plan to the Summit County Council last week. Then stay tuned for Mountain Money. Today's guests include author John King recounting the saga of San Francisco's ferry building as he explores the larger evolution along the waterfronts of cities everywhere. Then Gretchen Ruck, senior advisor at Lockhaven Solutions, shares her expertise in the risk of adopting new technologies, focusing on the ins and outs of the IRS's new online filing application, Direct File. Finally, the use of AI technology to conceive and construct the most advanced, efficient, and adaptive luxury homes with Charles Ocello. All of that, again, coming up on Mountain Money, and of course, you can hear Mountain Money every Monday between 9 and 10. Taking a look at some local news now, three homeowner associations are suing Park City Municipal over its decision to give up public right-of-way on a portion of Deer Valley Drive. KPCW's Parker Testa reports. In December, the Park City Council unanimously approved Deer Valley's request to vacate the right-of-way on about two acres of private land adjacent to the Snow Park base. The resort plans to use the land to build a new village with hotels and commercial space on the Snow Park parking lot. Three Deer Valley area HOAs, American Flag, Pinnacle, and Morningstar Estates are now challenging that decision in 3rd District Court. State law requires the council to find good cause to vacate a road. A letter of intent outlines a deal the city struck with Deer Valley to find that good cause. Elements of the deal include a parking reduction, $15 million from the resort to build a transportation facility, and a gondola that will connect Snow Park to Deer Valley's new East Village base in Wasatch County. The lawsuit claims the council's finding of good cause was arbitrary, capricious, and illegal. For months, Park City Mayor Nan Worrell and two liaisons from the city council negotiated privately with Deer Valley officials to find a fair exchange for giving up the road. The lawsuit alleges those liaisons, Ryan Dickey and Max Doylney, prejudged the partnership agreement in a way that disqualified themselves from voting. Attorney Eric Lee made that accusation on behalf of the HOAs during the last meeting on the project in December. The two council members dismissed the claim. Here's Doyle's response. The idea that that either of the liaisons had a predetermined outcome prior to starting this is um, unfathomable. We would not go into any negotiation with that in mind. Frankly, it's a little bit offensive. Even if Dickey and Doyleney would have abstained from voting, the other three council members approved the deal. Park City Municipal has yet to respond to the legal complaint in court. A city spokesperson said the process and vote met all applicable legal standards. A spokesperson for Deer Valley said the resort is in talks with the city and HOAs 
and hope that any outstanding matters can be resolved amicably and to the satisfaction of all parties involved. The Snowpark project still has to go through the city's planning commission for final approval. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News. Wasatch County introduced public transit just over a year ago. Leaders now exploring how to expand those services. KPCW's Grace Dorfler has more. High Valley Transit Executive Director Caroline Rodriguez told the Wasatch County Council Wednesday one key lesson stands out after a year of public transit in the Heber Valley. Your utilization rates have reached the point where it is absolutely clear that there is a demand for such service. 14 months after the bus service debuted its 106 line from Park City to Heber City and brought its microtransit vans to Wasatch County, public transit has support and continues to gain traction. High Valley Transit has provided more than 175,000 rides to Wasatch County residents since November 2022 when it first started service in the Valley. More than 70% of those rides are microtransit trips, most of which are within Heber City. Rodriguez presented ridership data to the Wasatch County Council Wednesday. She says transit access has been a game changer for many of the county's 37,000 residents, especially low-income riders and residents who don't have their own cars. One thing is clear, High Valley Transit is fulfilling an unmet need that was very apparent on the Wasatch County side. She says the time is now to expand High Valley Transit's offerings in the county with 30 to 40 minute waits for micro transit rides because of high demand. As the county grows and brings new developments like the Deer Valley expansion north of Heber on US 40, the need for transit will only increase. Several county council members also point to demand among hospital workers and teachers for a route that would run between Heber and Utah County. Wasatch County Manager Dustin Graybaugh says formally annexing into High Valley Transit will require two additional transit sales taxes, but growing transit services in the county will eventually require investing in facilities like a park and ride, a transit center, and vehicle storage for buses and vans. Just getting enough sales tax to cover the immediate operating costs is, is likely not going to be sufficient in the long run. The county could apply for federal grants to help pay for capital projects, but taxes are the primary means of funding transit long-term. County leaders plan to discuss the direction for public transit in the Valley at future meetings. Grace Dorfler, KPCW News. It's 818 now. Good morning. I'm Leslie Thatcher. It's the KPCW Local News Hour in the studio now with an update from Park City Fire District. It's Fire Marshal Mike Owens. Good morning. Good morning. So this month we wanted to focus on home fire dangers associated with heating. Lots of ways to start a fire in a house. Um, let's talk first about uh, space heaters and what people need to know about that. You know, probably the, the number one thing to know about space heaters is, generally speaking, they're fairly safe to use. Uh, there's a lot of panic about them that we can calm down just a little bit, but there's a big caveat there, and that's that they have to be used the way they're designed. Um, basically, they have to be used safely. So uh, if you look at the instruction manual for any space heater, it's going to say something along the lines of don't use on a combustible surface. So, you know, ideally, you don't want it placed right on your carpet. Uh, it's going to say don't cover. Uh, I caught my own kids doing this. They, they thought it might be nice to uh, build a little fort in the living room and then they were cold so they took a space heater and turned it on and we're like oh you can't do that one <laughs> um, and then the other important thing is to make sure that there's nothing around it that can actually catch on fire so if you have it next to i mean i, I know it's silly to say but you wouldn't believe what we see out there sometimes we see it next to garbage cans or 
boxes of recycling or something like that. It's not the best place to put it. There's better places to put it. Uh, also keep in mind that they're hot. I mean, they're a space heater, right? So they are capable of burning you, burning the kids. So keep that in mind. And then keep it in a place where it's not going to fall over. Uh, most space heaters, especially newer ones, they have, a, they have a feature that when they tip over, they turn off. Uh, but not all of them have that. So just want to make sure that you're using good space heaters from a, from a reliable source. Uh, don't buy the, the cheapest one you can find and hope it's going to do the job. And keep in mind that it is a space heater. Uh, it's not designed to heat a whole house or to be left on while you're gone or anything along those lines. Okay. And what about putting them into an, uh, um, an extension cord? Oh, Leslie, <laughs> what are you doing to me here? Um, ex so extension cords are okay if they're, if they're rated, and really we could get really technical into this, and we could say if you have a, a big extension cord, you're probably going to be okay, but generally speaking, you want to plug it straight into the wall. Okay. Fireplaces, I'm guessing mostly chimney fires is what we're talking about? We saw a lot of those uh, last year in 2023 and 2022. Um, and, and it wasn't so much the chimney itself that was catching on fire. It was the chimney chase because the chimney had failed. So anytime you have a fireplace, one thing you want to do is make sure that that chimney is serviced on a, on a regular basis. Now, uh, if you look on any, any documentation, the nationally accepted, accepted standard is that you're going to have your chimney serviced once a year. That means cleaned and checked. But practically speaking, if you only burn a fire in your fireplace twice a year, that's a little bit excessive and you're not going to want to pay for the cost. And we certainly understand that. So uh, we do want it checked on a regular basis. And what, what regular means is just really depends on how much you use it. If you use it a lot every year, then you're going to want to have it checked every year. If you use it one or two times, you could probably go two or three years before it needs to be checked. But the important bit is it's not just getting cleaned, it's getting checked as well. And it's that it's still functioning and it's still in one piece. The old school uh, brick chimneys are usually okay, but the chimneys that we see in, in newer houses uh, that are, you have a, a pipe going through a chimney chase, uh, those are where we're seeing problems. Um, so explain that to me. I don't Yeah, I just understand the old style. So, so the old style you had, a, it, it was made of, made of brick mm -hmm. and it couldn't catch on fire because it was brick. Uh, in newer lightweight construction, what we see is uh, basically a wood box that, that builds a, a, a pathway for the chimney to actually flow through. You know, the smoke doesn't go through that wood box. It goes through a, a pipe is the easiest way to think about it. And that pipe comes in several different pieces. It can become detached and let heat into that space. That's what we see. Ah, okay. Now, do we ever see any cases of, of spark coming out of a fireplace? We do, and we actually had a, ch had a chimney fire from that. Um, one of the things that we are, we, that's very high on our radar of concerns is wood shake shingles. And not just because of wildland fires, but because of chimney fires as well. If you do have a chimney, uh, if you do have a wood-burning stove in your house, one of the things you want to make sure is that you have a, a chimney cap on top, and that chimney cap is probably going to have a smoke arrestor, or a, excuse me, a spark arrestor connected to that. And that spark arrestor is designed to catch those sparks and prevent them from floating out into the air. Uh, and in this case, this particular house, there was... There was a fair amount of damage, probably close to about $20,000, uh, just because the spark, it didn't have a spark arrestor on the chimney cap. Those sparks were landing on the roof and caught the roof on fire. Would that happen with an asphalt shingled roof? Uh, so anytime I say no, someone's going to come up with an exception. Generally speaking, no. Uh, but just because you have an asphalt sh shingle roof doesn't mean you're out of the, out of the woods. If your chimney is made of wood, um, then those, those uh, especially on the outside, if you have some sort of wood, um, wood covering on the outside of your chimney, then those sparks can just as easily get between the asphalt shingles and that wood and sit there and smolder until the conditions are right to catch on fire. Yeah, what about forgetting to close on the inside the... Oh, Spark the flu. Screen, we, yeah. we go on a lot of, we go on a lot of, um, 
uh, reported house fires or smoke investigations because people don't know how to use their chimney correctly. Uh, a lot of guests come into town and they say, oh, here's a fireplace. All we've got to do is light it up. They don't realize that they have to open the fluid. You know, the, the uh, fireplaces are actually pretty pretty interesting from a physics standpoint, how it works, how air gets moving through there. Uh, it's Generally speaking, if you do it right, it's pretty simple, but it can cause a lot of problems if you don't know what you're doing. Okay, and then a radiator's on the list, and I'm like, does anybody have a radiator anymore? I mean, my grandma did, but... <laughs> They're not real popular. Mm. Um, so uh, the big thing about radiators is they generally don't catch things on fire. And we're talking about, just like you said, the radiator that your grandma had in your house, maybe she had a boiler boiler somewhere. Um, sometimes in older multifamily structures, we'll see these not a lot so much here in the, here in the, west, um, the west side of the United States. But what we do, there, there are a couple of them out there. And the big thing to remember is that they are hot. Um, that can result in burns to those little kids. So make sure that if you do have a radiator in your house or if you have a nightly rent or a short-term rental that you're using, have some sort of protection around that radiator to keep people from getting too close to it. Okay, and I know you see um, lots of folks with uh, fires on the stove. Just what forgetting about them? That is, yeah. So one of the one of the big concerns, one of the biggest cause of house fires in the United States is kitchen fires, and they almost all start from food left on the stove. There are a few cases where the uh, you know something gets too close to the stove and then it catches on fire. But when you think about the way your kitchen is made, usually you'll have a stove and you'll have something around your stove that's that's uh, cabinets or something along those lines. And when you have when you have that sort of thing, then what what happens is if you do forget food, then it can catch on fire. Oil is another really big danger. Uh, oil is it'll it'll catch on fire once it gets too hot. And we do have several fires a year that are caused by oil that's left unattended. So what should people have close by? in the event something like that happens before the fire department can get there. So the best thing you can do for an oil fire is just to cover it. And if, you, if you're using a pan, just have your lid out so that you can cover it and turn the heat off. That's going to stop the fire, 99% of those cases. The worst thing you can do is throw water on it. Uh, we do a really great demonstration where we take just a small amount of oil, we, we put it on a, on a flame and let it catch on fire, and then just putting a small amount of water on it, we demonstrate how this giant fireball uh, happens. Um, that's, so that is the absolute worst thing you can do is put water on a, on a grease fire. Fire extinguishers are good. Some of them are designed for kitchen fires. Uh, some of them are not. Uh, so just make sure whatever type of fire extinguisher you have, you, you, you have one in your kitchen that's capable of handling fires. But really the best thing you can do, cover it, turn off the heat, it'll go out on its own. Well, what about a box of baking soda? Is that going to do anything? You know, we, we, we used to say a box of baking soda. And the, the theory behind that is, is that if you have a, a surface that's on fire, you can throw the baking soda on top of it and it'll form a crust that will separate the oxygen from the, from the fuel. And it does work kind of, but not that great. It's better to just cover it. If, if you don't have a lid, it's something, but uh, don't count on it working. Okay. And, and I mean, really, Leslie, my, my box of baking soda is either in the back of my fridge or in the top shelf of my cabinet, so I can't get to it anyway. <laughs> All right. And lots of people, of course, like to burn candles. Candle, it seems like every time I'm in here, we're talking about candles. Uh, my daughter is 10, and I have a 15-year-old daughter as well, and they both love to have candles going. And the one rule is that, that someone has to be around it, and it has to be in the middle of our counter where there's nothing that's going to catch on fire. Candles are good. They're great. They make your house smell, smell wonderful. Just keep in mind those few, those couple of safe, safe tips. Make sure someone's there. Make sure it can't tip over. Make sure there's nothing around it that can catch on fire. And again, watch out for the pets. Uh, pets, for some reason, cats just have a knack of knocking over candles. Um, heat tape. And how would a fire start with heat tape? 
So that's a that's a big one. We see several several calls a year where we're going on heat tape that's malfunctioned. Uh, over time, it gets old, uh, it cracks and gets brittle, and then shorts out, starts to spark, and can generate more heat than what it's supposed to heat, and then it will catch the roof on fire. Um, a lot of the times, the heat tape fires that we go on are just sparks. It's nothing too serious um, because it's caught before it gets too bad. Uh, I'd say maybe once or twice a year, we have a a fire that causes a little bit more damage than just the just the sparking of the heat tape. Another big thing is to make sure that it's installed correctly. Not all heat tape is the same. Uh, most of the time, it's when it's installed by professionals, then things are just fine. It's the problems that we get into is when we climb up on the roofs ourselves and say, "Oh, I can do this," and we end up nicking it with a with one of the little nails on the the holders. Yeah, and I guess it really determines on de would determine uh, exposure. But how often would you need to replace heat tape? That is a very hard question to answer and, and your best scenario would be to call an electrician because some heat tape will last longer than others and, and really it depends on our winters. If we have a winter where it gets really cold and then really warm, that, that outside insulation on the heat tape is going to break down. It's going to crack and fail. All right. Um, also, uh, I saw a post about uh, somebody, I think it was in Pinebrook, walking around and, and saw several uh, fire hydrants covered i mean with all of the new snow whose responsibility is that or do you guys go out and check we we do go out and look at fire hydrants uh we we get several complaints a week about fire hydrants it is the responsibility generally speaking of the homeowner to take care of the property owner to take care of the fire hydrant uh, there's a few the rules are a little bit different uh, depending on whether or not you're in park city boundaries or whether you're in summit county and who your water service provider is but in almost all cases it eventually boils down to the landowner needs to clear it out uh, the best thing we can say is that if you do have a fire hydrant on your property we ask you to please take care of it uh, if you have neighbors around who are willing to help you out then it's great to take turns doing it you know my my neighbor has a fire hydrant and he and i take turns shoveling it out uh, if you have a fire hydrant in your in your neighborhood that's not being taken care of then the best thing to do is give us a call and we're, we're not going to come out and, and shovel your hydrants leslie i'm sorry that's there's a lot of fire hydrants out there and we just don't have the time to do that uh, but we will get you on the right track to find someone who can help you out when if a hydrant is missing the flag that kind of identifies where the hydrant is will you provide those so those come from the water company mm -hmm. and those are incredibly important so if if the, if you do have a fire hydrant on your property that's missing that flag please either call your water company or again call us and and we'll get you pointed in the right direction. When it snows, we need those we need those flags up to know to know where the hydrants are, assuming that the property owner hasn't already shoveled them out. And just just one more thing, uh, I have personally been fighting fires where we've uh, we've been a little short on water and we needed a second fire hydrant and we couldn't find it because the the um, the the flag wasn't there and it was buried. So. Uh, we do appreciate the public's help on that quite a bit. Okay, finally, just wanted you all moved now into the new Silver Lake Station, Station 34. We are. We're happy to be in there. Uh, it's it is a beautiful station, and uh, we we really appreciate the patience of our neighbors while that thing was being built. It took a little bit longer to get done than anticipated. Uh, if you remember, last winter was a pretty rough winter, or it was a great winter for skiers, a little rough on the construction industry. Uh, but we we are we are in there. Our firefighters are loving it. It's bigger, so we have room for a ladder truck up there, which is a, an important uh, an important thing to have in, in areas where we have buildings as tall as they are up in that upper Deer Valley area. Yeah, probably a big change compared to the little tiny homes that they were living in, huh, down at the yeah. Ontario Mine? <laughs> yeah, the, the heaters work, so that's that's nice. Um, it's, it's much more comfortable. And one of the big things that we focused on with the construction of this building is this, this fire station is essentially their homes. 
you know, they're, they're going to be there for, for two days and they, they need to be comfortable. So it was designed, that was one of the, one of the big focuses with the way it was designed. Everything from making sure that you, the bedrooms were, were uh, sealed from sound outside to uh, just the flow of the movement through the building. Okay, so once they leave, who changes the sheets? They got to change their own sheets. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a hotel. <laughs> they all have their own bedding. They have their own sheets. And I'll tell you what, Leslie, that each crew has their own refrigerator. <laughs> nice. Okay, Mike, we'll see you next month. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mike Owens, Park City Fire District Fire Marshal. You're listening to the local news hour here on KPCW. 8.33 now. Good morning. I'm Leslie Thatcher. Joining me now in studio with an update from Youth Sports Alliance's Executive Director, Emily Fisher. Good morning. Good morning. Well, let's start with uh, Karina Elliott winning her first gold medal in aerials. It's exciting. Yeah. The Youth Sports Alliance is super excited for Karina Elliott. She is an alumni of the Park City Ski and Snowboard team. Uh, she is an aerials athlete. Uh, she really came to aerial skiing a little bit late, had a background in gymnastics. Um, but we have supported her when she was with Park City Ski and Snowboard with the YSA Stein Erickson Dare to Dream Scholarship. And uh, it's just amazing to see her continue her jersey journey and end up winning her first World Cup. So very excited. She continues to volunteer for YSA, give back to YSA in many different ways and inspire a lot of the young athletes in the community. So just a really fun, fun weekend and fun highlight to see. Okay. So this was where what, that she was competing? Um, she was competing in a World Cup aerials event, I believe in Canada. Um, mm -hmm. And so was able to step onto the top step of the podium and just uh, really exciting um, to see somebody who's worked at it a long time. She's had a couple of in injuries and uh, to come back and win a World Cup is, is really exciting. Okay. And again, um, she is just, that's just one of the seven uh, clubs that you help support? Correct. So like Karina, if you train with one of the seven Park City-based winter sport clubs, uh, you are eligible for need-based financial assistance from the Youth Sports Alliance Stein Erickson uh, Endowment to help pay for training, travel, and competitions. So those seven partner clubs are Figure Skating Club of Park City, Park City Ice Miners, Park City Ski and Snowboard, Park City Speed Skating Club, Wasatch Freestyle Foundation, Wasatch Luge Club, uh, Utah Olympic uh, Bobsled and Skeleton. So um, we award scholarships in the fall that are for the annual training um, fees. And again, these are all need-based. So we uh, make sure that these are going to athletes who would not be able to participate without this funding. So uh, we do that in the fall. And then the spring, we have two application periods. And this is for a competition that maybe an athlete was not planning on. So they had a really great season. They qualified for junior worlds, junior nationals, um, or a postseason camp that is uh, put on by national and governing bodies. So they can apply right now. Um, we have two application periods because between the seven clubs, it seems like some national championships are in February and some are in late April. So trying to cover those two periods. So you can apply now between February 12th and February 22nd, um, and those awards are announced uh, March 8th. And then the second application period B is from March 15th to April 1st. 
and these awards are announced uh, April 17th. So trying to cover all those post-season uh, post competitions that can be very expensive, but also very important for athlete development. Are you able to fund all of the requests? We, we do not fund all the requests at 100%. We try um, really hard to maybe get to about 50% of the ask. Um, and it depends. Some of the sports are, are very expensive. Some are, um, you know, if you're starting out, less expensive. Um, but we try to make sure that we're helping out so those athletes can get to those competitions as opposed to not being able to go. All right. And again, you said it's just on, on the front page, ysa.org. Yeah, ysausa.org, uh, and then programs and scholarships. All right. Let's get an update on the after-school programs. It sounds like some of them are wrapping up. Yeah, after-school programs have been very busy uh, since the beginning of the year. Our Kodiak after-school snow programs are mostly wrapped up for the season. We're incredibly grateful to Park City Mountain Deer Valley, Woodward, Utah Olympic Park, and White Pine Touring. They welcomed nearly 800 kids to their venues over the past month for lessons, which is um, uh, a large number of kids, a lot of coordination in very snowy Fridays. So uh, very thankful to, to those venues. Uh, we do have a couple of uh, snow programs starting at the end of the month. That is new this year. We're running a Learn to Ski program for students from North Summit. So this is our first time offering programs to students in North Summit, and that Learn to Ski program will happen at Woodward. So very excited about that. Uh, we also, registration is open for our Kodiak after-school programs in March and April. There's still a lot of activities coming up. I know right now when we had snow like yesterday, it's hard to think about springtime, but those activities will be coming up quickly. So we have mountain biking, ice skating, uh, Woodward indoor multi-sport, basketball, acting, and a lot more. And you can find that information at ysausa.org. Uh, those uh, programs are open to students from Park City, South Summit, North Summit, and Wasatch School District, as well as Park City Day School, Telios Academy, and any homeschoolers out there that would like to participate. Okay, and then you also have scholarship programs for those because those are fee-based. Yes, yeah, so our after-school programs um, sponsored by Kodiak are fee-based, but we try to make sure that every student um, in the community can participate if they would like to. So students who are eligible for the free and reduced lunch program pay a small commitment fee to participate. Families making up to $120,000 a year can work request a scholarship as well and those families pay half the registration fees to participate so just trying to make sure that um, everybody can participate we also um, for our scholarship students have equipment clothing gear so we have um, helmets we have mountain bikes we have all the things necessary for those students to participate Awesome. Any update on the new vehicle? Yeah, so that was going to be my last update as we were able to uh, go to Asheville, North Carolina, to the Biltmore, and we saw our vehicle. We drove our vehicle. It was very exciting and honestly pretty emotional to see our logo on the side of a car. It was just, uh, just a thrilling weekend. Um, now that vehicle will be shipped here to Utah. It's a little bit tricky with winter weather and sh shipping vehicles. Um, so we expect to get that vehicle, I think, in mid-March. Mm -hmm. And then we are working with Deer Valley to do a community reveal of the uh, vehicle. We feel really strongly 
I can't tell you how heartwarming it is to go to the grocery store and to see people and they say, not only did I vote for you, but I voted every day, which was just incredible. So um, we will have an uh, event at Deer Valley with some hot chocolate, some cookies, and reveal that, that vehicle to the community. Uh, sort of your votes, your vehicle, we're very excited. Um, to, and then get that into uh, practice this spring and use it for transportation for programs. Awesome. And the grant money that you want as part of this, it's in the bank? Yes, it's, a, it's uh, yep, that grant money has come in and we're looking at um, how we can support our programs with that, um, with that and not just with the vehicle, but also for other transportation, um, having that covered. So really exciting time at the Youth Sports Alliance. Okay. Emily, we'll see you next month. Thanks. Thank you. Emily Fisher, again, is the executive director of the Youth Sports Alliance. You're listening to the local news hour on KPCW. It's 841. Good morning. I'm Leslie Thatcher. It's the KPCW Local News Hour in the studio now with an update from the Snydeville Basin Special Recreation District as Executive Director Dana Jones. Good morning. Good morning, Leslie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So you were at the County Council meeting last week and presented the 10-year strategic plan along with the five years trails plan. So they, the plans are finished? They are. We're doing a, we found a couple of typos, so we're doing a little bit of tweaks on that, and then, a, and then we'll be posting it on our website for the public if they want to take a look at it. Um, but yes, they're pretty much done. All right. What do they tell you? You know, um, we were really proud because one of the things they told us is, is that the public in general really values um, all the recreation that we provide and that we are, um, we're doing a good job. But the, the, growth in this area as as everybody knows is is exponential and so you know the challenge is going to be keeping up with that in the future um so if you were to implement what the 10-year plan says i mean how much money are we talking about you know it's not specific it's more of a you know how how we're going to do things rather than exactly what we're going to do so we are still wrapping up the um, Silver Creek Village um, development plan which would be more of a what are we going to do with that property and potentially other properties our 10-year strategic plan is more um, you know it takes a look at our mission and our vision and our guiding principles it, it really did a lot of community outreach to find out you know are we going in the direction that the community wants us to go and and it talked about um, some big moves and big moves doesn't mean we're going to build this kind of facility in in this place it more talks about um, financial moves it talks about operational moves it talks about community moves so you know making those partnerships and you know taking a look at some of our our interlocal agreements and making sure that you know we're doing those right and, and we're doing the really the best thing for the taxpayers one of the kind of interesting things that is at the last chapter of the plan is a decision-making guide so um, people probably wouldn't be surprised that we get a lot of people that come to us and say hey we want you to build this or we want you to do this and you know a lot of times i mean we would love to do everything for everyone <laughs> that would be that would be awesome but we can't do that and our just this decision making guide in the plan if people get a chance to look at it it gives us a chance to evaluate proposals so if someone comes to us and says we want you to build a skeet shooting uh, range. 
which has happened in the, in the last year, we can take that proposal or that idea and then put it on, lay it over this decision-making guide and say, does this make sense? Does it make sense for all the reasons for our mission, for our vision, for what the community needs, for what land we might have available or, or land we could, we could make available? Basically a rubric then, right? right? That you just, yeah. Yes. Okay. And then it's done objectively because we've, you've identified the, the goals and the visions. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it'll, it, it'll just be easier for us to really mm -hmm. evaluate things. And then, you know, I mean, if, if it passes muster, let's say, then we have to figure out how to do it. <laughs> Then we have to figure out, okay, do we need uh, to, to get funding for this? Do we need to identify land for it? Do we need to identify partnerships for it? There's some really great ideas about there about community partnerships, about private partnerships. Um, there's a, a lot of cool things that recreation districts are doing throughout the country that we can kind of take a look at. Okay, um, so you said it's not yet posted. When do you expect that to be posted in those plans? I'm gonna go with, we have some staff out for the, the uh, spring break week. So I'm gonna hope for next week. All right, and then with regard to the trails plan, what does that tell you? You know, what the trails plan actually did was back in 2019, Basin Recreation did a trails master plan. And it basically took that trails master plan from 2019 and said, are we doing all the things that we identified that we wanted to do in that? And it, it took each of the objectives in that plan and said, are we meeting them? Are we exceeding them? Or are we kind of falling down and, and need to do a little bit better on that? And, you know, 90% of them we are meet, meeting or exceeding. Uh, the couple things that I think we need to work on, we are actually already working on, and that's partnerships and really identifying how we can work together with um, not only, you know, other organizations around us, but also the community. And one of the things that we did hire a community outreach supervisor, and Travis has been working on a district-wide volunteer program. So we are really going to this next year be be pushing for how can we let the community come in volunteer with us help us out and then you know be able to give back to those volunteers also all right we did report on the e-bike survey that uh, you had mentioned um, a joint project with park city municipal again when you talk about trails what i know that uh, the park city plan found out it was that just pedestrians people with strollers just it doesn't mix well with the number of e-bikes that we're seeing on the same pathway so how do we fix that? <laughs> That's a really good question. And actually the county council brought that up when we, I was talking to them on Wednesday also. Um, how do we fix it? I don't know that we can fix it. We need to figure out, um, do we need to separate uses? And we've actually looked at doing that in some places and developed maybe some, and I'm talking about single track trails now, whereas you know you might be talking about the paved okay. transportation trails. Um, but we're looking at some hiking only single track trails. But we really want to know what um, the current uses and the public opinions are of e-bikes on all of our trail system. Um, as many people know, um, Basin Recreation's uh, regulations for single track trails are a little different than Park City's. So it can be very confusing because our trail systems are contiguous. They all kind of meet up with each other. So our goal is to really um, look at all, all our policies together and try to figure out a way to integrate them and have everything be the same. Now, um, 
we really need to know what the public feels first. And we're not going to go out and ask the public, you know, do you want to do this and then do something exactly opposite. Um, we're we're going to do our best to try to um, follow the guidance that the public's going to give us. The e-bike survey is going to be interesting. They're going to be sending out um, postcards to all of the households in Snyderville Basin and Park City. And it will have a QR code on it. And we encourage people to go online and take the e-bike survey. And then after they get the data from that, they're going to, we're going to then, you know, kind of put it out to users then. We'll post QR codes at some of our trailheads because as everybody knows, not everybody that's on our trails, um, you know, lives here in Park City or Snyderville Basin. So we want to, we want to get a feeling for not only the residents, but also the users and, you know, where they're coming from and, and what they think. Yeah. So when you talk about just the, the, the differences between Park City and Basin, Park City does not allow e-bike mountain bikes on single track trails the basin does actually <laughs> um park city does allow e-mountain bikes on single track trails if you have a special exception yeah right, if yeah. you're 60 for the most of us yeah. yeah you have a mobility disability or you're over 65 correct um basin actually doesn't allow them at all um now given ada um regulations you know of course we're following those but we do not have the age exception that park city has uh, so it can be a little confusing to folks for um that might you know fall into that age exception and and want to be able to ride on all the trails so do you anticipate though keeping that that the single track sort of sacred for for folks that's an interesting discussion and we are really excited to hear from the public and see what they think Mm, okay. So we should expect to start seeing those surveys in our mailbox when? I believe they're going to send them out the end of the week. All right. Um, there's also, and I don't know where this came from, but I remember uh, the speed limit for e-bikes, 14.2 miles per hour. <laughs> I've, uh, I've tested it going down the, the bike path from, you know, along the, the city park trail here. And without pedaling or anything, I mean, it's 18 miles an hour no brakes. And I see lots of people pedal down it and go much faster. To go 14 miles an hour, you're squeezing your brakes the whole way. So are we going to set a speed limit? You know, that's a really good question. And and we also have, you know, um, the sheriff's department's also involved and has taken a look at our e-bike survey and, and is weighing in on it also. The, um, the biggest problem with setting a speed limit is enforcement. Obviously, why would you set a speed limit and then not enforce it or not be able to enforce it? So, you know, we're probably going to get get away from setting a speed limit and instead, you know, travel at a safe speed. And so if someone does, you know, cause an accident, if they were traveling at an unsafe speed. But, it's, but it is also interesting that, you know, if you're walking or pushing a stroller along a path and a, a bike, e-bike or not, you know, comes by you, it feels like they're going fast. I mean, you know, you might say, oh, that guy was going at least 40 miles an hour and he was probably going 20. Um, so it's, it's really a matter of, you know, teaching etiquette. And I know our rangers are out there all the time working on that. But also there are some state law that have to do with, you know, age limits and all those kind of things that um, that we're also going to have to, you know, inform people about, inform parents about to make sure that they're, that the kids are out there and, you know, not riding three on a bike without helmets, you know, down the path at 30 miles an hour kind of thing. Okay. Wanted to briefly, the Silver Creek Village Development Plan, when is that going to be ready? You know, we are still working on that. Um, and 
I would hope within the next month or so we'll, we're going to be able to line that out. We did meet with Elliot Group that's working on some of the drawings. They have some great ideas for you know facilities out there or, or things to do out there. Um, it is uh, again, and and I know the public um, is is very leery about you know raising taxes right now, and we we did do the um, the statistically valid survey and determined that. Um, you know, a third would vote for it, a third won't, and a third is in that movable middle that we might be able to convince. But we've pretty much decided that um, going for a bond this year, especially a big bond, which would be needed to develop really the kind of facility that we're hearing people want, um, isn't probably a good idea this year. So we're really going to look at how can we phase some of that work at Silver Creek? How can we do a few things now with, with funding that we have? How can we work with the county? How can we work, you know, with some of our partners to say, you know, maybe we don't have to bond or maybe we don't have to bond for as large of a bond and we can get things like grants or, you know, funding from other places and, and really try to better manage the public's money and make sure that whatever we promise, if we do bond, we do build because I know that's been a problem in the past. Yeah, so the district will start to see increased tax revenues come in as a result of the de development at Silver Creek Village. Do you set that aside specifically for Silver Creek Village or does it all go into the general fund? You know, we have, um, when new buildings are built, we get impact fees. And so we do set those, those are set aside separate and they have to be spent on um, building new facilities. And so we do have some of that money available now. And that's what I was thinking of for maybe some of this phasing idea get something out there that the public can use now, put in some trails, maybe possibly put in a dog park or, you know, something that the public can use now with some of those fees that we have. Okay. Um, and then just finally, uh, an update on what's going to happen this summer in terms of some projects that you've got going? We have a couple of things going this summer we're, we're excited about. Um, we do, we are replacing the artificial turf at Matt Noop. Um, it is um, needing to be replaced. It's uh, artificial turf generally lasts about 10 years. That, um, that life can be shortened if you plow it a lot and you know things like that um, I think ours is at 11 now so we uh, staff done an awesome job of maintaining it but it is time for it to be replaced and we do do testing on it every year and that kind of gives us an idea for um, when it needs to be replaced so that's going to be replaced in the spring and we've already lined up a contractor so as as soon as that snow melts and we're ready to go we're going to get that done so that'll be um, it'll be done quickly in the spring um, so we're excited about that we're still working uh, with the county on our plans for run amok in that parking lot and potentially some uh, permanent restrooms um, out there which is going to be fun um, we so we are uh, we're, we're pretty busy and we're also working on our permitting for um, shades over between the pickleball and the tennis courts at Willow Creek, which we, um, which we did get a grant for, but um, we're just getting through the permitting process and, and figuring that out. So those are a couple of things that people can be um, excited about and interested. Right now, our, you know, our teams are out there. They, you know, they report they got more snow than expected and we're expecting some snow, rain and soft conditions this week. But uh, just a reminder that um, after any snow event that our, you know, Basin team's priority is to first plow the safe routes to school, the commuter trails, the trailheads in the parking lots, and then we can move on to grooming and, and those kind of things. And we usually start at this kind of the center of the basin and, and work our way outwards on that. 
Someone wanted to know, um, once you taught ready to toss that turf, can, can you make it available to residents who may want to use it as to replace their grass? That is an interesting question. I have not had anyone ask that, and we will, uh, you know what, I will ask the contractor that. So if whoever might be interested in that can shoot me an email. That's Dana at basinrecreation.org. If I find out, I'll, um, I'll let you know. Okay. Anything else you want to mention? No, just uh, we're uh, busy and excited, and I uh, hope it snows more than rains in the next couple of days. Okay. Dana, thanks. That's Dana Jones, the executive director of the Snyderville Basin Special Recreation District. You're listening to the local news hour on KPCW. Well, Matthew and Tatiana Prince, owners of the Park Record, have preliminary approval to build a large home on Treasure Hill that will overlook downtown Park City. KPCW's Parker Malatesta has more on that. In a 4-2 vote, the Park City Planning Commission granted the Prince's request to change rules pertaining to their property on King Road. The commission was split 3-3 over whether to grant the two conditional use permits for the home. Commission Chair Sarah Hall broke the tie, voting in favor of the Prince's plans following roughly four hours of discussion. Next, the commission is expected to take action on the final conditions of approval for the home next week. Commissioners Laura Susser and Henry Sig were the most critical of the project, saying it didn't fit with Old Town's historic character. Over a dozen residents spoke during a public hearing Wednesday as well. Opinions were split. Eric Herman, who lives next door to the Prince property, argued the couple shouldn't be allowed to change strict Old Town land use rules to build the home. Herman said when he and his wife approached the city with renovation plans years ago, they were forced to comply with city code. Outside of the Hermans and one other property owner, the Princes said they had the endorsements of their immediate neighbors. Another nearby resident, Sue Barsamian, praised the home's architectural design. You know, a, a nice combination of modern with a real, I think it was noted, a real homage to Park City's mining history. Last year, the Princes hired a lobbyist and attempted to insert bill language during the Utah legislative session to subvert the local planning process so they could build the home. City Hall was critical of the efforts, which were ultimately unsuccessful. Matthew Prince is the founder and CEO of Cloudflare, a cybersecurity company. Forbes estimates his net worth to be $3.7 billion. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News. 29 degrees currently here in Old Town Park City. Clouds are moving in. We do have a 50% chance of some rain and snow after 2 o'clock. Otherwise, a high today of 43. Rain and snow mix tonight as we see temperatures drop just to 33. A rain-snow mix tomorrow again looks like a better chance of some snow there. 41 is the expected high, 38 on Wednesday with more snow in the forecast. Continuing through Thursday, sunshine by Friday.